The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service of Berean Baptist Church. We're going to look at a parable spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ, the parable of the generous vineyard owner, in Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. Matthew chapter 20, let's go ahead and stand together as we read God's holy word. Matthew 20 and verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right, I will give you. And they went their way. Again he went out about the sixth and ninth hour, and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle, and saith unto them, Why stand ye here all the day idle? They say unto him, Because no man hath hired us. He saith unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard. And whatsoever is right, that shall ye receive. So when even was come, the Lord of the vineyard saith unto his steward, Call the laborers, and give them their hire, beginning from the last unto the first. And when they came that were hired about the eleventh hour, they received every man a penny. But when the first came, they supposed that they should have received more, and they likewise received every man a penny. And when they had received it, they murmured against the good man of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden and heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst not thou agree with me for a penny? Take that thine is, and go thy way. I will give unto this last even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with my own? Is thine eye evil, because I am good? So the last shall be first, and the first last. For many be called, but few chosen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this afternoon, for this time that we can gather together around your truth. Lord, we pray by your Spirit you would speak to us through this parable, that we would be instructed in your word, that we would grow in our faith, that we would be challenged to be faithful, Lord. Thank you for the gift of eternal life through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us as your people to be good stewards of the gospel of grace, that we would grow in our love for you and our love for our neighbors. And by showing love to our neighbors, sharing the gospel, which is the power of God, unto salvation. Bless your word as it is taught this afternoon to your people's lives. For we ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. The parable of the generous vineyard owner. The prophet Ezekiel ministered during the time when the kingdom of Judah was taken into captivity into Babylon. Ezekiel ministered God's word to the exiles in Babylon. He had repeatedly warned them about their sins, especially the sins that resulted in them being kicked out of the land and sent to Babylon. One of the sins, besides the idolatry that went on in the land of Israel, one of those sins was that they were guilty of accusing God of being unfair and unjust. That is, the people of Judah were saying that God was unfair and unjust in the way he was treating them as the exiled people of God. They like to use the following proverb found in Ezekiel 18, verses 2 through 4. The word of God reads there, What mean ye 
that ye use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, saith the Lord God, ye shall not have occasion any more to use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all the souls are mine. As the soul of the Father, so also the Son, the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. What they were saying was that because our fathers, our forefathers, our grandparents, our parents, our great-grandparents, because they sinned and they've eaten sour grapes, we are the ones that are suffering the terrible consequences of our father's sins. That is, our forefathers were guilty, but not us. We're innocent. We're just innocent sufferers as we are deported to the land of Babylon. When we were, we were innocent, our parents were guilty, but we are suffering the consequences. God is unjust in the way he is treating us as the people of God. Twice in the chapter, the Lord declares in Ezekiel 18.25, <clears throat> Yet ye say, the way of the Lord is not equal, not right. Hear now, O house of Israel, is not my way equal, that is right? Are not your ways unequal? In other words, when men doubt the justice and the fairness of God, it is always because of men's own perverted views of justice and their warped views about God. God himself is the standard of righteousness. It is impossible for God to be unjust, just as it is impossible for God to lie. Confronting the same false principle reflected in that ancient Israelite proverb, Paul declared in Romans 2, in verse number 9, Tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For there is no respect of persons with God. God is fair. He's not impartial in all that he does. In no area is God's impartiality more significant and wonderful than when it comes to regarding salvation. No matter what men's circumstances might be when they come to Christ, no matter how well or poorly they served him after coming to Christ, all sinners who genuinely repent and believe in Christ have the same salvation by God's grace. If we can emphasize the main point here of this passage or parable, it is this. Regardless of when a person comes to Christ, all come into God's kingdom on the same basis, and that is by grace through faith. And all receive the same blessing of eternal life. Now the context of this parable, it is spoken by Jesus after Jesus had dealt with the rich young ruler. He was a Jewish man, uh, he was a ruler in the synagogue, and he came running to Jesus, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Surely this guy is going to get saved. He ran to the right source of salvation, Jesus. He asked the right question, he wanted to be saved. Yet in reality, the man was full of self-righteousness. What must I do to be saved? He believed in human ability, that he had the ability to earn or merit God's salvation. Jesus gave the law to this proud man and told him to keep the commandments. Jesus named a few, and the man responded, All these for my youth have I kept. What lack I yet? That is self-righteousness. All, of, all the commandments you've named, he says, I've kept them since I was a boy. Jesus, looking at his heart, knew this man loves his money. He's a breaker of the tenth commandment, Thou shalt not covet. This man loved his money more than his maker. So Jesus told him, go and sell all that you have and pick up your cross and follow me. The Bible says he went away sorrowful. He would not repent of his covetousness and he would not take Christ unreservedly as his Lord. When Jesus beheld his disciples, he said unto them, with men, salvation's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. In other words, humanly speaking, it is impossible for anyone to save themselves. Only God can save a soul. 
But it is more difficult for a person who has, the more money he has, the more temptation there is to trust that money than to trust in Christ alone for eternal security. They find it almost impossible to replace trust in the visible means of support with the invisible Christ. Only God can affect such a change in a man's heart. Peter responds to Jesus, Lord, we've forsaken all and followed you. And Jesus promised there would be rewards for following the Lord and serving him. Now this parable here in this chapter, we're going to see that rewards certainly are different for believers, but salvation is the same for all people who come to Christ in genuine faith. There is no salvation 1.0 for the man who was saved one year and died, and the man who and the man who was saved for 40 years and served the God faithfully for 40 years and died, he doesn't have salvation 2.0. There is just one salvation for sinners who genuinely believe in Christ. We're going to look at this parable and then draw out some lessons from it this afternoon. First of all, number one, we're going to see the gracious hiring of the workers. In verses 1 through 7, the gracious hiring of the workers. How the landowner goes to hire men and pays them a very gracious wage. Verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is likened to a man that is a householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers in his vineyard. So our Lord states that the parable is about the kingdom of heaven. This is a subject that Jesus dealt with when he spoke to the rich young ruler. Jesus is given an illustration of the spiritual realm of salvation, where God rules in righteousness and grace. It is an illustration of the equal and just basis that God gives the same salvation to all types of sinners who believe in him. Our Lord is giving a common earthly story. Here's a man, the estate of a landowner included a large vineyard. And so he needed to hire some hands to help him during this season. Every summer, both the new and old vines had to be pruned and improved for the the coming year. It was very demanding work. The final major operation, of course, was the harvesting, which was done in Israel in late September before the rainy season would set in. And many times, men didn't have enough servants to harvest his field, so he would have to hire day laborers to come and work for him. So they would seek temporary day laborers from the nearby towns and villages and hire them on a day basis. Usually, these day laborers were the most unskilled in the workforce. They were at the bottom of the social economic ladder. They worked from job to job, many of which lasted no more than a day. They had no guarantee of work beyond what might be they may be doing that very day. They would gather in the marketplace and wait for someone to come by, a landowner, and to hire them just for one day for they could survive. They would go often very early in the morning to the town square and wait there for someone to hire them. They would come with their tools and wait to be hired for the day. These workers were the most desperate for work. Therefore, they were the most vulnerable for people to take advantage of. They were often the most underpaid of workers in first century Israel. Because of our Lord's great compassion, God's compassion for the poor, And the downtrodden, God commanded his people to treat day laborers well and fair. In God's law, Leviticus 19.13, the Bible says, Thou shalt not defraud thy neighbor, neither rob him. The wages of him that is hired shall not abide with thee all night until the morning. In other words, if you're a rich landowner, and you've taken a day laborer, and you worked him all day, you better pay him come evening at six o'clock. Don't let this man go home without a paycheck because he, he depends on that to live at the end of the day. So God's law made it clear. A Bible-believing Jewish man had a responsibility to pay his day laborers on a daily basis and not take advantage of the most poor and desperate in society. In Deuteronomy 24.15, Moses wrote, At his day, at his day thou shalt not give him, thou shalt give him his hire, Neither shall the sun go down upon it, for he is poor, and setteth his heart upon it. Least he cry against the end of the Lord, and it be sin unto thee. So you had to pay a day labor at the end of the day, or it was a sin 
according to God's law. Verse 2. When he had agreed with the laborers for a penny, that is a denarius, a day, he sent them into his vineyard. So he goes and he hires these day laborers early in the morning. He promises to pay them, our text says, a penny, which is a Roman denarius. How much is a Roman denarius? Well, it's actually a silver, silver coin, and it is very generous pay. A Roman soldier was paid one denarius a day. And here are day laborers, the most unskilled, the ones who are the lowest on the economic level, and they're going to be paid by this vineyard owner a very good amount of pay for one day's of labor. One denarius, one penny. So the vineyard owner is very generous in his offer. And so he comes and he says, if you come and work for me all day, I will give you a penny. And they say, this is fantastic. This is a wonderful opportunity to work one day for one penny. This man pays well. He is a very generous and gracious owner of a vineyard. And so they agree to that and they go work one day for one penny. Verse 3. And he went about the third hour, that's 9 a.m., and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. Let me pause here. The Jewish workday began at 6 in the morning. Not at 10. At 6 in the morning. It was the first hour. At 9 a.m., the owner goes again into the town square to hire day laborers at 9 a.m. He sees others standing idle. This is not a reference to teenagers in the mall who are standing there idle. They're just sitting there, looting, right? They're looting, <laughs> loitering, <laughs> looting. They might be doing that too, huh? <laughs> These are men who are standing, waiting for employment. That's why they're not doing anything. They're, they're waiting for work. They want to work. They're not just waiting for a handout. They want to work. Standing idle, they're waiting. And he comes and he hires more at 9 a.m. Verse 4. And said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right I will give you. And they went their way. Now notice, at 9 a.m. when he hires this group, and then at 12, and then at 3, at 5, he never tells them what he's going to pay them, just the first group. He just tells them, you come and work for me, I'm going to pay you what is fair. So they have no idea how much he's going to pay them. They're just happy that they have employment. They're going to work because they need to work. Otherwise, if they don't work, they will not eat. These workers, no doubt, had trusted the owner as a man of his word. Verse 5. <clears throat> Again, he went out about the sixth hour, that is 12 noon, and the ninth hour, 3 p.m., and did likewise. And then he goes on, of course, in the eleventh hour at 5 p.m., verse 6, and about the eleventh hour, that's 5 p.m., he went out and found others standing idle, and saith unto them, Why stand ye here all the day idle? So now he goes out for the last time at 5 p.m., and these day laborers most likely are men who have been overlooked. That's why they've been there all day since 6 in the morning looking for work, and no one has employed them. Why? Well, perhaps they're usually the oldest or the weakest or the least productive of workers, but they need to work in order to survive, so they have not left the town square. And the owner of the vineyard so graciously comes and says, Hey, it's five o'clock. I have an hour of work. I'm going to pay you a fair wage. Come and work for me. And they agree. Regardless of what they're going to receive, they agree. Verse 7. They say unto him, Because no man hath hired us, he saith unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right, that shall ye receive. Verse 8. So when even, that is evening, at 6 p.m. was come, the Lord of the vineyard saith unto his steward, Call the laborers, and give them their hire, beginning from the last unto the first. Now, the owner here was doing what any Bible-believing Jewish employer would do. He hires a day laborer according to God's law. You must pay that day laborer in the evening when his work is done. You're not to keep your money and wait a couple of days. No, you're to pay him according to God's law, and that's what he's doing. The men were paid from beginning from the last unto the first, the last hired. So he's expanding the proverb that he gave of the last being first and the first last. The primary idea of the parable and of Jesus' application of the parable is that each laborer is going to receive equal pay regardless of how long they labored. 
Number two, in verses 8 through 15, we see the dispute over the gracious amount paid to all. There's a dispute over the, this gracious amount that was paid to everyone. Verse 9, And when they came, they were hired about the eleventh hour, they received every man a penny. But when the first came, they supposed that they should receive more. And they likewise received every man a penny. And when they had received it, they murmured against the good men of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us, which have bore the burden and the heat of the day. The householder, the landowner, paid the other men a full day's wage, even those who only worked for one hour. Now those who had worked all day assumed this is not right. This is probably what they, when the, the, the pay was first given out to the men who worked only one hour, those who worked all day were probably thinking, if the men that worked one hour, one hour, they received one denarius, one penny, surely he's probably going to give us 12 denarii, even though they agreed to one. But this is the way the human mind works, right? They got one, then I must get 12. I'm going to deserve a, not only good pay, but really, really good pay, like 12 times more than what I agreed to. But the, the opposite happened. They murmured against the good men of the house, verse 12, saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us, which have bore the burden and heat of the day. This is not fair. How is it that people work one hour, they get paid one denarius, and I worked all day, I'm getting paid the same? I worked in the scorching sun, and you're paying me just one denarii? Even though that's very, very generous pay. It still didn't seem fair to them. Verse 13, he answered one of them and said, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst not thou agree with me for a penny? Take that that thine is, and go thy way. I will give unto this last, even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with my own? Is thine eye evil, because I am good? So the last shall be first, and the first last, for many be called, but few chosen. So the owner says, hey friend, I'm not doing you any injustice. Why? Because when I hired you at six in the morning... I told you I'm going to pay you a penny, a denarii, a denarius, and you said, yes, this is great wage. That's what we agreed upon. So if I pay you exactly what I agreed upon, how am I being unjust? I'm keeping my word. The owner let them know firmly, respectfully but firmly, that they were out of line to question his justice. He was doing, the owner was doing no wrong because they all had exactly what they what he agreed upon with them. You've worked 12 hours. You've agreed to that work. I agreed to pay you a penny, and that's what exactly you got. Listen, take what I've given you. I promised to give you it. I gave it to you. Now go your way. It should not be your concern if I give unto the last, even as unto thee. It's none of your business how just I am. When he paid the late-coming workers, or any others, what he paid them was strictly his own business. Remember, the men that he hired at, at 9 o'clock, and 12 o'clock, and 3 o'clock, and 5 o'clock, he never told them what he was going to give them. So, he's telling the guys who have worked all day, what I pay the rest of the men, it's my business, it's my vineyard, this is my money. I don't owe you an explanation. In fact... All these other late workers, I never even told them what I would pay them. So if I want to give them one denarii, I can do that. It's my vineyard. The problem was not injustice on the part of the landowner, but jealousy among the workers. That was the problem. Is thy night evil because I am good? That is, are you jealous because I am generous to all my workers? The charge of unfairness was not grounded in a love for justice, but in the selfish ambition that extra pay they wanted, they really deserved. In the reality, of course, he didn't have to hire any of them, but yet he did. 
Regardless of the differences between the men's situations, whether they're accomplishments or capabilities, none of them were wrongly paid. None of them. In fact, all of them were well paid by a man who was not obligated to, to pay them or even to hire them to begin with. The primary point is that of the owner's right to pay all the workers the wage he saw fit. Remember, this parable is about the kingdom of heaven. The vineyard is, is God's, a picture of God's kingdom. The landowner, a picture of God the Father. The foreman or the steward, God the Son. The laborers, believers, the penny, a picture of eternal life. Eternal life is received equally by all sinners who trust in Christ. The workday is the believer's lifetime of service for God. Some serve God for many years, some just for a little while, yet all receive the same type of salvation. God's sovereign principle for salvation is that every person who truly believes in Christ receives first quality eternal life, and there's no other eternal life but that. There are no exceptions or variations. Whether a person is saved as a child and then lives for God many years, or a person is saved at the last minute, it is the same salvation. Remember the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, he talks about heaven in the third person. He knew a man who saw paradise. Paradise, a picture of heaven. Paul speaking of himself and how he saw heaven. And of course, when he died, Paul said to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. Paul, for many years, served the Lord. And when he died, he went to paradise. And yet, here's another man. He lives a life of a criminal. He's an evil man. Society doesn't find any good in him. He is called a malefactor in our Bible. He is a worker of evil. He's committed capital offenses. He is suffering the death penalty next to the Lord Jesus Christ. What good is him? He said, oh, but didn't he repent? But if you look closely at that criminal who was converted next to Jesus at his crucifixion, at the beginning of the crucifixion, both thieves, even the one that Jesus saves, both of them are cursing Jesus to his face. People are walking by, saying, hey, he saved others, but himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, come down off the cross. And the thieves, plural, not singular, and the thieves cast the same in their teeth. Both men were wicked. They were evil. And they were both blasphemers. And as they blasphemed Jesus, one died the way he lived, a wicked man, and he went straight to hell. But the other man, something happened to him. He was there. He was a blasphemer. He's blaspheming Jesus to his face. And by the way, to speak from the cross required great effort. Usually a person would literally drown in the blood that would fill their lungs. So in order to inhale or to exhale, you had to push your back on the rough timber in order to exhale or inhale. So to speak required a lot of energy and caused a lot of pain. So here's a man, he's so full of hatred, he's blaspheming Christ, but all of a sudden God shuts his mouth. All of a sudden God begins, begins to change his heart. And how does God do that? He uses it by the instrument of the Word of God. That's the way God regenerates sinners, through the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. So what, what preaching did he hear? Oh, he heard a message, because false teachers can once in a while preach some truth. After all, a broken clock is right twice a day, right? Teachers were walking by and saying to Jesus, He saved others, but Himself He cannot save. That's true. Jesus could not save Himself, because in order to save sinners like you and I, He had to die in their place as their substitute. He heard the Word. God began to do a work in that criminal's heart. But not only did He hear the Word, He read the Word. So where did He read it? Over our Lord's neck, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And they put that play card on his top of his head when they crucified him. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. He read the word, he heard the word, and he believed the word. And there he is, he grows silent. He's brought to repentance, he rebukes the other thief. We're, we're justly receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man, Jesus, he's done nothing amiss. Lord, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Today, Jesus says, thou shalt be with me 
in paradise. This man didn't live a long, profitable Christian life like Paul. He didn't start any churches. He didn't get baptized. He didn't do anything, really. He, God just brought him to repentance and he believed. He was saved. And Jesus told him, today, today, you're going to be with me in paradise. God saves him. And what type of salvation did he receive? Salvation 3.0? No. Same salvation as Paul. Same salvation as John, as Peter. This criminal who receiving the, the, the just reward for his deeds, receiving the death penalty. Society could find nothing good in him. But thank God, God isn't saved because there's something good in men because there's nothing good in them. But because God is a gracious and merciful Savior. And he comes to believe and he receives the same type of eternal life that men like John, the apostle who lived up to his 90s serving God, they receive the same quality, the same eternal life through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The subject here is not personal rewards. No, the issue is every believer receives the common salvation, whether we've served God for many years or just a few moments. The same salvation offered to sinners who truly believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian who is envious of other Christians for whatever reason is not only unscriptural but foolish. If God really did give, if God really gave us what we deserve, yeah, I don't like that parable. It's kind of, kind of unjust. You know, I, I think God should give us, give us what we deserve and we would all get hell. That's what we would get. We've broken God's holy law. Jesus said, be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. God demands absolute righteousness and none has it but Christ. Jesus wanted his disciples to see, as well all of his followers, that salvation is not in any way deserved or earned. It is a free gift of God dispensed sovereignly and impartially to whomsoever, whosoever believes in the Son. Whether it's believing tax gatherers like Levi, who we know as Matthew. Whether it's the criminal whom God converted in saving grace. Whether it's the Apostle Paul, Spurgeon, Luther, Wesley, or prostitutes or drug dealers whom God saves. It's the same salvation by grace through faith. When a person is saved, even if they have not lived very long for the Lord, they don't go to heaven and live in the ghetto east side. It's the same heaven. It's the same glorious salvation that he has granted through God's Son, the Lord Jesus. What are some spiritual principles that come from this principle? What are some, from this, par- from this parable, what are some principles? Well, I'm glad you asked. Number one, God sovereignly initiates and accomplishes salvation. That's one lesson we learn here. God initiates, sovereignly initiates, and accomplishes salvation. You see, it was the landowner who went looking for the workers. It was not the workers who found the landowner. It was the landowner who found the workers. He was the one seeking laborers for his vineyard. This is what God does. God does the seeking and the saving. Romans 3 says that no man seeks after God. What does that mean? It means no man seeks after God. That's what it means. On their own, no one seeks the Lord. But thank God, God seeks sinners. Though we respond with a desire to believe in Christ and follow Christ, is because God has, has wrought that desire in our heart. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. As the psalmist said in Psalm 110, verse 3, Thy people, God's people, shall be willing in the day of thy power. Salvation is not ultimately a human decision. God is both the author and the finisher of our faith. The Bible says in 1 John 4, We love him because he first loved us. Therefore, we have no right to determine what we ought to get. It is God's grace and mercy that any are saved at all. If we sought the Lord early and came to believe in Christ as a child, praise the Lord. If we got saved later on in life, still praise the Lord that he saved you. I think of the example of Zacchaeus. Jesus is 
walking through this prosperous resort city of Jericho on his way up to Jerusalem for the last time. And it's interesting that he saves the riches and the poorest at that time. He, sa- he saves a blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, who sat by the highway side begging. And he saved the richest man of Jericho, Zacchaeus, the chief of tax gatherers. He saves all, a picture that Jesus saves all types of sinners. He's walking through Jericho. There's a crowd of people. It's the Passover season. Thousands of pilgrims are walking with Christ. But Jesus stops. And he goes to the side of the road where there is a little man by the name of Zacchaeus who's climbed a sycamore tree and he's hiding behind the leaves. He's, he's camouflaged. And he's hiding. And he's looking at Jesus. He wants to see Jesus. Jesus knows who he is. Jesus goes straight towards Zacchaeus. He's never met Zacchaeus. But the shepherd knows his sheep. He goes there and he looks up to the tree. Zacchaeus, make haste and come down. For today I must abide at thy house. You don't usually invite yourself over to someone's home that you've never met. Bob, you scare him. How do you know I'm Bob? I'm going to your house today. <laughs> How does that work? Jesus goes there. He names him by name. Come down off the tree. Today, I'm going to your house. Why? Because today, I'm going to save you. He doesn't even ask him. <laughs> Does he ask him for permission? Zacchaeus, I'm knocking on the door of your heart. Only you can let me in. I don't think so. I don't think so. Zacchaeus, Make haste. That means hurry up. Come down. I must go to your house. I must save you. He goes in there. A greedy, wicked little man that he is. He's a chief publican, a tax gatherer. Someone who's betrayed. He's betrayed his own people, the Jews. Collecting taxes for the Romans. He's hated. He's lower than swine. He's, he could use military strength in order to get more taxes from people to make himself rich. He's the lowest of society. He's untouchable. And many, in the eyes of many, he's unsavable. Yet he's the Lord's sheep. And the shepherd goes after him. Goes into his house. He comes out. How do you know? How do you know Zacchaeus is saved? Did someone write his name in the Bible? And the date that he got saved? No, no, this is how we know. God changed his life. He went in, a greedy little man comes out, a generous man. He goes in with a false faith, comes out with a genuine faith. Jesus says he's a son of Abraham. He has a real faith in God. God has saved him and he, he promises to give back all the money he stole and plus more. Truly, salvation has come to this man's home. And then he says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Notice Jesus didn't say, I just came to try to save. He said, I came to seek because no one seeks him. And then to save those that he seeks. That's what he said. And Zacchaeus was number one trophy of the free and sovereign grace of God. God initiates, initiates salvation. He seeks and saves. And it is a privilege as God's people to participate in spreading the gospel. Laying out the gospel as sheep food by which the sheep will eat and be saved. Number two. We learn that God alone establishes the terms of salvation. The landowner told those he hired in the morning that he would give them a penny. He set the price. This is what's going to take place. You're going to work for me, and you're going to be given this, and they agreed. Those day laborers, they didn't, they didn't argue with the landowner. Oh, you've got to talk to my union rep. Otherwise, we're going to march on your vineyard and burn it down. What? They made no bargain. Uh, He comes, the owner comes, and he says, this is the way it's going to be. You're going to work, and then you're going to receive one denarius. One penny. Those who came late also struck no bargain at all. The master said, whatsoever is right, I will give you. Verse 4. They accepted those terms. The rich young ruler would not accept those terms. He would not repent of his sin and embraced Christ in faith, and so he went away lost. Christ told him he had to repent of his idolatry and covetousness and follow him, and he would not. 
those who truly realize their need for salvation will not bargain with God. I remember witnessing a someone we met door knocking, my wife and I, and we asked him if we could come back and talk to him about salvation, what the Bible said. But he said, sure, come back and talk to me. Just by talking to him, I could really tell what one of the main issues was. He was very feminine, and you could tell, so I'm thinking this guy's probably homosexual. I said, could I come back and open up the Bible to you? And so we did. We came back, sat down, and began to share the scriptures with them. And he says, I have one issue. Well, I'm pretty sure I know what it is. I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet, but I think we're going here. He says, well, you see, you're married to your wife, and I want to marry a man. My wife almost lost it there. Why are you comparing me to a man? <laughs> but she didn't. She says, this is and I said, well, this is the issue. The issue is, what does God say? Not what you desire or what I desire, but what does God say? God says this about homosexuality. Is it a sin? And if you practice that lifestyle, 1 Corinthians 6, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the bad news. The good news is, God can save people out of any type of background and any type of sexual perversion. God is a mighty Savior who will save any and all repentant sinners. God's command to you, my friend, is to repent, to turn from your sin and embrace Christ, and he will save you based on the work of Jesus, not your work. But you must recognize what you have chosen is a sin and an abomination before God. Well, I, I think I'm going to be a Christian, I think, but, but I'm, I'm not going to change my life. I don't think so. He, he wanted them to bargain. I'm not a salesman. I don't even work for Amway. I, I'm just here to tell you what the gospel is, friend. Repent or perish. There's no bargains made. Number three. Another principle we learn here. God continues to call men into his kingdom. Notice that this landowner, a picture of God, he, he goes out at 6 a.m. and then he gets some men and then he goes back out and gets more men at 9 a.m. and then he goes back and gets more men at 12 a.m. He goes back and gets more men at 3 p.m. and then at the very last hour he goes back and gets more men at 5 p.m. Right before 6 o'clock, end of day. He's constantly going back and bringing people to himself. God is going to continue to call sinners to himself to the last hour of this age. The night of judgment is coming when no man can work. But while it is day, the Father will continue to draw men to Christ. Jesus realized when he was on this earth, his time of ministry was around three and a half years. He said in John 9, verse 4, I must work the works of him that sent me. Well, it is day, the night cometh, when no man can work. This, the fact that he kept on going, the landowner, and grabbing more men and more men, all the way to the last hour. We ought to be, as ambassadors of Christ, constantly calling men to faith in Christ. When should we stop evangelizing? I'll tell you when. When you die. That's when you stop evangelizing. You can stop then. But until then, and who should you evangelize? Man, if they look alive, they're a prospect for evangelism. That's it. They're not walking around with a tattoo of an E on their back for elect. I have no idea who they are. We're to preach the gospel to every creature. Urging men to repent until the last hour. And then when we die, we stop. We're to constantly call men to Christ. We're to redeem the time because the days are evil. Number four. Number four. Those that God redeems are willing to work for him. Those that God redeems are willing to work for him. The men of the parable were looking for work to work for a landowner. That is why they went to the marketplace. Everyone who the landowner hired, every one of them labored. Some for one hour, some for 12 hours. But everyone worked. When a person has, listen now, a genuine faith in Christ, they want to labor for the Lord that has saved them. James 2.17 Even so, faith, if it hath not works is dead, being alone. A, a false faith, a demonic faith, says, yeah, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. Do you want to live for God? No, not really. I want to live for myself. I want to live for money. I want to get a great career. i got to learn to love myself, because if I don't love myself, I can't love others. What baloney? What psychological baloney? Our main problem is not loving God and others, not ourselves. We do that naturally. 
A person with a genuine faith will desire to work for God. We're not saved by our works, but we're saved to work for the Lord. Ephesians 2, right? Verse 8, For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But what does verse 10 say? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in therein. Think about what it's saying. We are saved by God's grace, not by our works, but we're saved to work, and that verse 10 is not a command. Verse 10 is an indicative statement. What does that mean? It means this. God saves you by his grace, not by your works, and you're saved, and you will work. That's a description. It's a description of a genuine believer that's saved by grace. They want to work for the Lord. The idea, I'm saved, but I never do anything for the Lord. I'm going to wait till I rededicate myself later. No, no, listen, you need to get saved. Because if you're saved, you want to work for the Lord that saved you. Even the convert, remember the converted criminal? He's on the cross. He comes to true faith. See, well, he didn't do very many works, but, but think about what he did do. The other criminal who doesn't get saved, he's cursing Jesus. Why don't you come down off the cross? If you're the Christ, save yourself and us. Self-righteous to the day he died. The other thief whom God has given, taken out his heart of stone and given him a heart of flesh, he rebukes the other thief. We are receiving the due rewards of our deeds, but Jesus... He's done nothing amiss. You're wrong in what you're saying. He defends Christ. He's only saved a few seconds and he's defending Christ. So even a man in his last moments who's only saved for a few hours, he has some works. He desires to live for the Lord, to defend the Lord. Number five. God is compassionate to those who have no resources. And acknowledge their hopelessness. The men in the marketplace were in great need. These are the lowest of the day laborers or the poorest of the poor. When the householder asked why they were standing idle, they said this, because no man's hired us. Why are you here all day? No one's hired us. I have no job. There's no unemployment. Can't get on welfare. There's no welfare. I'm just here. I'm helpless. They were so desperate for work that they literally were standing all day in the, in the town square waiting for work. A similar sense of poverty and extreme desperation is one of the characteristics of saving faith. In the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed is the poor. That must be me, because I'm so in debt with my visa card. No, no, it's not that type of poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed is the person who realizes I am a spiritual pauper. I have nothing by which to make myself acceptable before God. I have nothing by which I can save myself. Jesus says, blessed is that man. He realizes the only righteousness that God accepts is the perfect righteousness of his Son. Blessed is that man who realizes he has nothing in which he can save himself. He's spiritually poor. That man will be blessed with the spiritual riches that are found only in Christ. Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. These are the people with no resources. Like these laborers, they have nothing of themselves to count on. All they can do is lean wholly upon Christ and Him alone. Number six, and lastly, I know you don't want me to end, but I must. Number six, God has the divine authority and ability to keep His promises. He has the authority and the ability to keep His promises. When the landowner went out there, he wasn't saying, oh no, I, I could only hire a few more men. I'm going to run out of money. No, no, he's, he's wealthy. He's more than sufficient to hire anyone who's willing to work. He went out there and he had sufficient resources to bring all of these laborers. Oh listen, Christ is an all-sufficient Savior. His salvation is sufficient for any and all who will repent and believe on Him. 
He's a perfect Savior. We read this morning in John 6, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and he that cometh to me I will no wise cast out. Anyone who comes to Christ in genuine faith, none of them will be rejected. Christ is an all-sufficient Savior. He has the authority and the ability to save any sinner that the Father has drawn to him. It is that type of all-sufficient Savior that is offered in the gospel to sinners, to all sinners. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your precious word. The lessons that you have for us in the parable of this generous vineyard owner. How gracious he was to these men. And how gracious, Father, you have been to us in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Father, help us. You saved us to live for your glory. You did not save us and then kill us. You saved us and left us here on this earth to live for you. Help us, Lord, that we would grow in our love for you, that we would grow in love for our neighbors, that we would grow in our love for the truth of the gospel, that we would be able to say with Paul, without lying, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Help us that we would labor for you because it is a privilege to serve you because you have saved us. You're both our creator and our redeemer through the perfect work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless your word to the life of your people that we would grow in faithfulness because you have been so faithful and so good to us. Bless your word by the power of your Holy Spirit to our lives. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Brian Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.